Good morning again. We are in week 12 of our 13-week series, Long Story Short. Uh, and for many of you, it feels like it's a long story long, uh, but we've been taking the whole scripture, uh, the story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation uh, and trying to do it in one uh, complete series. And uh, we got one more week left, and uh, I've quite enjoyed uh, going through this and I hope you have as well. Uh, there, are, uh, there is a reading plan. I don't know how many of you have stuck with it through the whole uh, 13 weeks. That was a long slug. Uh, but uh, we've got a couple weeks left, and there are books uh, that have gone along with the series, and you can feel free to grab one if you don't have one, or you can download it uh, online. Um, yeah, yesterday, um, you know, yesterday was a big day. <laughs> Uh, the uh, the rough rider or the the roughnecks won the NLL apparently. So, you guys, how many of you guys watched the the rough riders roughnecks game? <laughs> Nobody's watching the rough riders. Um, the uh, but the Raptors. You know, last week they were down 0-2, and I, um, you know, I didn't even comment on last week. I commented on the shot and the series before, but they came back and won four straight games. Four straight games against a team that hadn't lost more than two straight all year long, and that it only happened twice. So Chris did say, um, I'm sorry. Like, I know some of you guys aren't basketball fans, Raptors fans. I've, you know, I've been cheering for the Raptors for over 20 years, and uh, this is unprecedented. So uh, forgive me if it just bleeds into our Sunday mornings. I am slowly discipling and mentoring our congregation to care about basketball. In fact, last night I'm watching the game and my phone starts blowing up and uh, so here's some of the texts I got from some of you. One of you said, uh, now that Toronto won, couple of questions, is church still on for tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> who do they play against, the Red Sox or the Steelers? <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I got another text that said, uh, I'm not sure if I'm more happy as a Canadian or as a friend of Matt Dick right now. So, <laughs> and then somebody else said, uh, is the highlight reel going to replace the sermon tomorrow? That's what they asked. And then I got an email, uh, and the email title was, no sermon tomorrow, just show Raptors highlights. Uh, so, uh, and I got lots of other texts. So I thank you for joining me on this journey. Thank you. Uh, I know many of you uh, aren't basketball fans, uh, but I know if, if you're an Oilers fan or, or a Rough Riders fan, you haven't had much to cheer about in a long time. So this is, this is an event. I think this is an event that our whole nation can get behind. You know, Canada's one basketball team. So, so all these other teams that divide us, um, let's forget those teams and come together as a country. Amen. We are talking about the, the church and unity this morning, so I think that, uh, that works. So, long story short, we are talking about the church. Last week we talked about the mission. And uh, when we pick up the story, so we, we looked at the end of uh, Matthew 28, where Jesus gives the great commission. He said, basically, to sum it all up, right, he says, go make disciples. That is the mission that he gave us. He, talks a, he talked about a number of things that... Uh, describes what making disciples looks like, but the whole point, the whole command for every follower of Jesus is to make disciples. That's your mission. That's my mission. That was the first disciples' mission. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And that's the way the book of Matthew ends. The book of Luke, uh, one of the other gospels describing the life and teachings of Jesus, ends in this way. Uh, it says, it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name 
to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised, but stay here. Everybody say, stay here. In the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. So that's the way the gospel of Luke ends. And, uh, and it ends with this verse. So they worshipped him and returned to where? To Jerusalem, filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. So this is important. This is, uh, you know... Come alongside the Great Commission that we looked at last week. Uh, Jesus giving authority, giving direction, saying, go wait in Jerusalem, stay there. Uh, the one that I've promised is coming, and my Holy Spirit is coming, and he's going to guide you. He's going to give you authority. He's going to give you power uh, to be about the mission that I've called you to, that we talked about last week. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so uh, you cannot actually read those two books as one book. So you go from the Gospel of Luke into the books of, book of Acts, and it reads as one story. And so the beginning of Acts begins like this. It says, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So again, we see Jesus commanding them, do not leave Jerusalem until your Father sends you the gift that he promised. And it goes on, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Where? Starting where? In? Throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is, we see this repeated a, a number of times. Jesus tells them, go stay in Jerusalem. Go stay in Jerusalem where the temple was, where that was the center of their religious activity. Go there, wait there. And then the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to equip you, empower you to be about the mission uh, that I've called you uh, to be on. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So it, it's, uh, geographically, it's moving away from the center of Jerusalem. That's the invitation that Jesus is giving his disciples. So then Acts 2. This is the moment. This is, this is Pentecost. Or this is what Jesus was saying was going to happen. You wait in Jerusalem, and so they're waiting there. They're worshiping. They're praying, just like Jesus told them to. And then it reads, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. So to give this a bit of context, we, we're going to rewind all the way back to the beginning of the series. And we looked at the creation stories, and then, and then in week two, we looked at a couple of events that happened after the creation. And one of those significant events was found in Genesis chapter 11, uh, which we read the story of the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis 11, um, in Genesis 11, 
It says, uh, it reads this, it said, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people move eastward, and so if you remember, the creation story starts in the Garden of Eden where man was living in harmony with God, with others, with Adam and Eve were living in harmony with each other. In harmony with self, they they felt no shame, and uh, they were living in harmony with creation. They were doing the the work that God had called them to do. So there's this four-directional harmony we talked about in weeks one, two, and three uh, that uh, the Jews refer to as shalom. So when they turned their backs on God, when they said, we're going to do things our own way, the story goes from Eden and it moves eastward. And and east becomes this direction in the Genesis story that describes the movement of humanity away from the center of God's will. The movement of humanity away from dependence on God to dependence on self. And so we see in In Genesis, in chapter 11, as people continued to move eastward, people continued to move away from the center of God's will, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Everybody say scattered. They're going to be scattered all over the face of the whole earth. So let's come together, make a name for ourselves. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people were were building. And the Lord said, "If, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. And they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So the story in Genesis 11, there was great unity in humanity. There was unity in this direction of moving eastward out of Eden. There was unity in this rebellion against uh, being in the center of God's will. They, They came together in that unity And they had one language at the time, so there was no confusion. And even though it wasn't a God-honoring unity, there was some element of unity happening. So God comes and sees that they're unified against him. And so he brings a confusion through uh, giving them different languages. And then because of that, the Lord scatters them throughout the world in their different languages, in their differences. He brings actually disunity to disarm them against what they were trying to accomplish together. So this is an echo of what is happening in Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, this long story that we've been talking about, we, we, we see it coming full circle. We see God actually responding and resolving some of the the issues, the turn of events that happened uh, in the story up until this point. So Acts 2 happens. God comes and he allows them to speak in languages that they didn't previously know, in languages that other people spoke, and other people began to understand their own languages. And so what happens as a result of this Pentecost, what happens as a result of the Holy Spirit coming 
We see this intense unity. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property, their possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So what is happening here? Genesis 11, the Lord scatters. In Genesis 2, the Lord unites. Or in Acts 2, the Lord unites. He brings commonality. He brings interdependence. He brings uh, people that uh, were from different languages, different nations, different backgrounds, together as one family on one mission together. Part of the miracle that strikes me in Acts chapter 2 is that God brings unity not through uniformity. Think about it for a second. If, if Genesis 11, God causes all these languages and scatters them, we would think that, that those differences were a bad thing. But in Acts 2, we actually see that God redeems this. God doesn't actually bring everybody back and make everybody the same again. Through his Holy Spirit, he gives the capacity and the ability for people, in spite of their differences, to come together in unity. Unity with diversity. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, different ethnicities and languages, the Spirit comes and unites them and gives them capacity and the ability to do life together. It's a beautiful event. And I, and I just love the, the enforcement that God, that God just gives us and says, you know, your uniqueness, your diversity is a beautiful thing, but let's bring it under the lordship of Jesus. And it's because of that, because of their mutual submission to the lordship of Jesus, that there's this uh, incredible unity that happens. And we see in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit equips the church, gives spiritual gifts, gives abilities to the church to come together, to encourage one another, and to be about the mission that God had called them to be on, to make disciples of all nations. When he equips the church with different gifts, he doesn't give the same gifts to everybody. He doesn't go back to uniformity. He spreads out the gifts in a way that his church would need to be interdependent, would need to rely and work together to accomplish what God had called them to accomplish. And that's why one of the images or the metaphor that's used throughout Scripture, particularly in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, is the body of Christ. That every person has a role. A foot, a hand, a finger, an eye, uh, you know, whatever it is. But the body needs each other. But it's united under the head, which is Christ. And so we find our authority and our unity from being under the head, Christ, but then we each play our part to encourage the body, to bless the body of Christ, and to be about the mission that God has called us to be on. I've got a, uh, I've got a good friend of mine uh, that I'm going to get some assistance in my sermon today. So I, you're going to need a microphone there. Um, yeah, come on up here, buddy. Can everybody say hi, Silas? So you say hi to everybody? Hi. Why don't you come? Let's, let's stand in front of the table here, okay? All right, so Sai's wearing his Raptors gear. You know, so you, you thought I was done with the Raptors, but I'm totally not. Uh, you know, the scripture talks about the body of Christ. You know, I think, you know, another metaphor we could use is talking about a team. Right, Sai? Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, and, and when you're on a team, you have different players, different people involved that play different roles. Yeah, yeah and, and Cy's been watching the Raptors with me throughout this playoff run, right, Cy? Yeah. Yeah, what did you think of the game last night? Good. Good? Yeah. Okay, so as he's been watching the game, or, and, he's been, and it just hasn't been the playoffs, you've, been, you've watched with me for, for a long time. Um, you know, he's obviously got the paraphernalia going on. And, and there's different players on this team that have different rules. So, Cy, who's, who's this guy? Kyle Lowry. That's right. And, uh, and what does Kyle Lowry do really, really well? Threes. Threes. Yeah, he plays pretty good defense too. Yeah, and uh, and what about what about this guy? Fred Van Fleet. Yeah, what what what's his nickname? Steady Freddy. Steady Freddy. Do you like that nickname? Yeah. Yeah. What is what does Freddy do really well? Threes. Threes. He does threes as well. Um, and Kyle Lauer's a starter, but what about Fred? Where 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 does 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 he start in the game? Or does he come off the bench? He comes off the bench. He comes off the bench, which is important because he can only have five guys to play at one time, right? But there's a whole bunch of guys on the bench that, uh, that don't get to play uh, as many minutes as the other guys, but they have a specific role to play, like Steady Freddy, right? Mm-hmm. And also like this guy. Who's this guy? Ibo- Serge Ibaka. Yeah. And uh, what does Serge do really well? Up by the net and dunking and, like, def- blocking Shots. Blocking shots, yep, totally. Um, and he comes off the bench now as well. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you remember who, why he comes off the bench? Because he used to start. Because they got Marc Gasol. Because they got Marc Gasol. That's right. So Marc Gasol came mid-season, and Serge had to change his role. Right? He had to come off the bench. What about this guy? Norman Powell. Norman Powell. What does he do well? Threes. Threes, yeah. <laughs> Got a lot of guys that shoot threes. He plays pretty good defense too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this guy? Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse. How does he play basketball in a suit? He doesn't. He's he doesn't. The, what does he do? He's the coach. He's the coach. Is that important to have a coach? Yeah. Why? Because they teach you stuff. Because they teach you stuff. They coordinate the team, right? How, how, would, the, how would those all those guys know what to do, when to go on, what plays are going to run without the coach, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's this guy? Who's this guy? Mark Gasol. Yeah, you already talked about him, right? So what, what does he do well? Um, like threes and like up by the net and deflecting. Yeah, he deflects. He, he's, he doesn't block a lot of shots, but he plays really good defense. He's, a, really, he's the center. And like we said, he came and Serge Ibaka went to the bench and they, those guys played together really well. Who's this guy? Kyle, I meant Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi. So when, uh, when we're watching a game together, what do you say? How do we start? You say? Kawhi. Can you say Leonard? Leonard. Kawhi. Leonard. Kawhi. Leonard. This is, how, this is what Cy does every game. He's like, I say Kawhi, you say Leonard. And then we, we play that game, right? That's <laughs> uh, good. What does he do well? Everything. Everything. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Okay. How about that guy? Danny Green. Danny Money Green, who hasn't been so money. So uh, thank goodness for Fred Bentley. This guy? Pascal Siakam. Yeah. Do you know what he does good? Um, up by the net and du- yeah. bit of dunking. Big dunking. Yeah. He's, he plays a pretty good defense. And uh, who's that guy? Drake. Drake. What does he do? He He's a good fan. He's a fan. <laughs> he's a big fan. Okay. Thanks, Si. Everybody give Si a hand. Thanks, buddy.
You can take that. Well, other than that being a proud dad moment, that was, uh, see what, what Silas is describing there is what we all know, uh, is that if you have a goal uh, and you're playing a team sport, you actually need everybody to play their role. And the, the, the goal that the Raptors have, the goal that every sports organization should have is, is to win, to win a championship, right? And to, in order to do that, in order to accomplish that, you have to identify what are your gifts, what's your role, what... Where, where do you belong? And even if you sit on the bench, you have a role there on the bench. And you maybe get a few, few minutes, you don't get a lot of minutes, but you have a role to play. And I believe in the same way that the moment of Pentecost is like the moment where God kind of assembles his team. He's like a GM bringing all these people together with different gifts, different roles. And it becomes obvious when we watch sports that that's, that's the case. But have you ever considered that the church is not unlike a team in that way? That we've maybe turned it into a spectator sport where we think there's a few people that are playing and the job of the rest of us is just to show up and buy our tickets and to support the team and to wear the paraphernalia, uh, but they're the ones that are playing. That's actually not what Jesus had in mind. The moment of Pentecost is the moment of Jesus recruiting all people to be on the team, all people to take on the goal and the mission, all people to have a role and a place. But there's something that happened. If you remember back in Acts 1 verse 8, said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And they got the first part. They started in Jerusalem. And you read, and if you read through the story of Acts, you see Acts 2, they're in Jerusalem. Acts 3, they're in Jerusalem. Acts 4, they're in Jerusalem. Acts 5, they're in Jerusalem. Acts 6, they're in Jerusalem. Acts 7, they're in Jerusalem. That they... This thing kind of happened where it's like, hey, this is really cool. God did some cool stuff. And this is the center. Jerusalem was the center of everything. Let's just hang out here. They forgot the goal. They forgot the mission. They, they maybe forgot why it was that God had called them, equipped them, and given them his Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit came and brought unity without, with diversity without re- resorting to uniformity. And the Holy Spirit brought different gifts, different roles, but they didn't take up their Acts 1-8 mission. They just stayed. How often in our comfort, in our comfortability, are we reluctant to actually step out, take risks, to move forward because it's just easier to stay the same. This is what happened in the early church. And then something happens in Acts chapter 8. It says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And Saul would be the one who would later become Paul. But at this point, he's still against uh, the church. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. So persecution came in Jerusalem. The place where they were comfortable became uncomfortable 
And then what happens? All of the believers except the apostles were what? Scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. See, in Genesis 11, God scatters the nations because they were unifying against him. In Acts chapter 8, God scatters them because they were just, they were unifying against him in another way. They were just comfortable and they were just staying where they were. And so God allows this persecution to happen. And, and the persecution, the suffering, the pressure that came at them from those that were against God actually became the motivation for them to pick up the mission that God had originally called them to. The mission of Acts 1 verse 8 was catapulted forward by the persecution in Acts 8 verse 1. Your 8 verse 1 moment, your moment of suffering, your moment of pain, your moment of discomfort, your moment, you know, I hate to use the word persecution where we are uh, because I feel like it undermines, you know, people that are undergoing real life-threatening persecution. But we're persecuted maybe in other ways, maybe encouraged to be silent about our faith. But Acts 8.1 is this moment in the early church where you would look at it and you would say, this is totally counter the mission of God, yet God used that event to push the church forward into the goal, into the mission, into the whole reason why he was died, why he resurrected, why he gave the Holy Spirit to empower them, not to stay in Jerusalem, but to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it didn't happen until Acts 8, verse 1. So I don't know what your Acts 8, verse 1 moment is, experiences, what you would look at in your life and say, God, why, you know, this thorn in my side, this thing that is, uh, you know, causing me suffering, causing me grief, this is what the early church experienced, but it was this event that forced them to reprioritize their lives and to move away from Jerusalem. Why did they stay in Jerusalem in the first place? We talked about that. that was the religious center. There was three institutions in the first century. There was the temple. And so we've talked a lot about the temple in this series, right? The place where they believe that God's uh, spirit dwelt, God's presence dwelt in a unique way in the temple, in the Holy of Holies that is unlike anywhere else in the world. And they had the temple in Jerusalem. And in the Old, temple, in the Old Testament, the temple model, the, the, this was a meeting place for God this is where the priest ministered the different sacrifices. There was, uh, we talked about the concentric circles of holiness. The closer you got to the presence of God, the more elite and exclusive uh, those who were allowed to get closer, the more uh, exclusive that circle got. But this was a meeting place for God to meet with his people, for people to sacrifice to God. And if you think about it, Many churches are built on a temple model. Many cathedrals. A temple model. Sacred space. But the temple model was not the church, the revolution of the church that Jesus was trying to initiate in Acts. There's great things about the temple model, 
right, this, this belief in the presence of God, but that changed. We see that change in Acts, that, that we now became the temple, that the followers of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God was actually in human beings, that we together make up the temple is a, is a picture that Peter uses, that we're all being built into the temple of God. So you had the temple, and then you had the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was a little bit different than the temple because the temple, there was just one of them, and it was, it was the center. It was the, the, where the presence of God was, like I said, where they came and did sacrifices. But the synagogues were, there was many of them in different regions, and people from that region would go to the synagogue, and the focus of the synagogue was on the teaching of the Torah and the gathering of the community. Now, I think if you were to look at our church model, by and large, in North America, we would probably look a lot like the synagogue model. Would you guys agree? So you have the temple model, you have the synagogue model, you know, a place where people would gather together in community to listen to some teaching. There was no sacrifices there, but the... The observance of the Sabbath was important. And so people hung on to the synagogue model to try and effectively um, have their faith multiplied through the generations. And it's a place where people in different regions could gather and be reminded of their identity as a people. Well, it's the synagogue. Now, so Jesus says this, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, church is a terrible translation. So I don't know what you guys think of when you hear the word church, but let's talk about it just for a minute. Some of us think of a temple. You know, maybe depending on your church background, yeah, if you had cathedrals in your background, more of a high church model, maybe you think of church more like a temple. The word here is not temple. Jesus didn't say, I will build my temple, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The word here is not synagogue. Jesus didn't come and say, I'm going to build my synagogues. I'm going to build these buildings where you're going to gather in community and you're going to listen to teaching. And uh, this is going to be uh, the way I'm going to move this revolution of the kingdom of God forward on the earth. It didn't say synagogue. In fact, it doesn't even say church. In fact, the word church is just a transliteration, which means We've just kind of took a German word and made it into an English word. Um, I can't even say that I'm not German, so I'm not even going to attempt that. Uh, but the, the German word that's used is, the, what's being described is synagogue. Is it, does someone tell me what it is? Kirche? Something like that? Um, and what's being described there is a place where people gather to listen to teaching. And, and so we adapted that word in the English language, and often it is used to translate the word that I'm going to talk about in a second as uh, we just use the word church. But that's not what it's describing. That's not what the word actually means. So the word is ecclesia. Everybody say ecclesia. So this is, this is the word that Jesus uses. This is what's happening in Acts. There is a movement that is not in the old wineskins of temple or synagogue, but there's a new something happening because of this new age that God has brought about by the death and resurrection of a son and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we see in Acts. 
Now, the Lord didn't discard the temple or the synagogue. He included the key dimensions. From the temple, he kept the indwelling of the presence of God, like we talked about, in his people. And from the synagogue, uh, he kept the central role of scriptures in the coming together to remind and encourage one another of who your identity is. Those, the, those two things of the temple and the synagogue still remained, but it went into a new wineskin, the ecclesia. It was first developed as the ruling assembly of the Greek democracy to govern its city-states. It's not a religious word. It's not a church word. It's a government word. And so the leaders, the ruling assembly and the Greek democracy would gather together. They would assemble together to plan together, to work together in how to bring about the kingdom of Greece to the different places. Eventually, the Romans adapted this when the Romans kind of took over that first century world and replaced the Greeks on the world scene. They assimilated the concept to their empire and used the ecclesia as the vehicle for culturally colonizing newly acquired territories. Their version consisted of a group of subjects deputized by the emperor for his will to be done in their respective regions. In essence, people in those days understood ecclesia to mean both the institution and the system by which territories were governed by selected local leaders who had been infused with the cultures and customs of Rome and were commissioned to bring the culture, the customs, and the authority of Rome out from Rome to the extending world. Jesus takes this word and he says, I am going to establish my own ecclesia. I am going to, I'm going to establish my own citizens, my own people that are part of a different kingdom, that understand my culture, that are under my authority, that when they go out into the world, they will represent me, much like those part of the Roman ecclesia would represent Rome. And then Jesus even goes as far as to say things like, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with you and you have authority there. That was a Roman phrase. Where two or three Roman citizens were gathered, there the authority of Rome was with them. Jesus takes it. The ecclesia also appeared in different formats and sizes, but they only became functional when the members duly assembled together. See, I think part of the beautiful piece of SunWest's history is that we spent so long, 23 years to be exact, without a building. And there's a whole bunch of great reasons to have a building. We've experienced those great reasons over this past year. But what I loved about our roots and the way we kind of functioned for so long is that we knew inherently that the body of Christ, the church, was not about a building, but it was about the people, and it was about the mission that God had called us to be on together. You know, I believe he gave us a home base from which we can launch mission out of. You know, maybe instead of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, we could say from Minipore, the chaparral, because chaparral needs the love of Jesus. Uh, you know, to the different parts of Calgary. You know, we, 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 could, we could talk about our own center, but the temptation for us is the same. We find something comfortable. We start to go back into an old wineskin. We adapt a temple or synagogue model 
And we say, this is church right here. It's not church. If, this is, if we're actually practicing ecclesia, then what is happening here is we're encouraging one another. We're spurring one another on. We're talking about the mission that God has called us to be on. We're talking about us being citizens of the kingdom of God. And then you and I, and we talked about this last week, are now going into the world as representatives, as citizens of the kingdom of God. When you go to your home, when you go to your neighborhood, when you go to your workplace, when you go uh, to the gym, wherever you are and you're going, you are part of the ecclesia. You are part of the representation of the kingdom of God. And then on top of that, he's given you gifts. He's given you spiritual gifts. He's given you abilities. He's giving you talents. And he's inviting you to lean in with those. That we together would be the body of Christ. That we need each other to live out this mission that he's called us to do. To be his representatives. Now, there's something. If you, if you were to look at the movements of the ecclesia throughout, throughout history, you'll notice, three, you'll notice three things. When it was moving powerfully... When there was a movement happening that was expanding rapidly, there's typically three things that were a part of it. Prayer, and we see that as a, before Pentecost, they were gathering and praying together. Persecution and poverty. In fact, where the ecclesia is multiplying and growing in powerful ways throughout the world, uh, or not in North America, but in places where people are praying, where there's persecution and where there's poverty. Now, I, I've scratched my head at this for a long time, and, and you know, prayer we can do. Uh, but what do, what do those last two look like for us? I, I want to focus on that question just very practically as I close. Prayer, well, that doesn't change. But we don't have a whole lot of urgency for prayer, I think, because we don't live in an environment of persecution and poverty. Can we as individuals as citizens of God's kingdom, as an ecclesia, up the value of prayer. Can we start to get on our faces before God in prayer without waiting for persecution or poverty to force us there? Or are we content to live in the comfort of Jerusalem until an 8-1 moment comes our way? Because it might come our way. But let's not wait till that point. Let's pray together. Every, every Sunday at 9.15, we gather in this space to pray. And we pray about the service, but I would love to actually see that 9.15 space go from praying about our Sunday services to praying about what God is calling us to as an ecclesia. And everybody can come. At 9.15, in this space, in this room, we pray for half an hour together. Persecution. Now, you know, I don't think we should go out looking for persecution, but... Uh, what happens in persecution, I think we can look at the results of persecution to get some insights, is in persecution, we are forced to focus on our priorities. What is most important to you in your life becomes most important to you in a more obvious way when you're under persecution. Your faith, your family, loving God and loving people, all the other stuff that we busy our lives with falls away in persecution. Do we have to wait for persecution until we take up kingdom priorities in our lives? I hope not. And then poverty. 
You know, there is such a thing as voluntary poverty, which some people do. Uh, but I think what happens when poverty hits an ecclesia or a community is that there's an interdependency and generosity that starts to happen. We read it in Acts chapter 2 where they shared everything in common. None of them was without need. Can we live with a radical generosity with our time, with our treasure, and with our talents here in Jerusalem, so to speak, without needing poverty to force us into that interdependent space? This is what I'm inviting us to as an ecclesia. This is what I'm inviting us to, church, to prayer, to kingdom priorities, and to radical generosity so that we can move not from just staying at the temple, not from a synagogue model, but that we can actually take up the mission of our Lord who's given to his citizens, his people, you and I, to see the kingdom of God advance from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. Let's stand and worship together. So we could just sit and we could just wait. We could just gather. We could just do this synagogue thing. You know, or we can recognize our role. We can recognize the authority and the gifts that God is wanting to give us to move from being a spectator to being a team player. And if you don't know how to get from here to there, um, I'm just, you hear us talk about starting point every week, but this is a, just a great place um, to start. And we talk about spiritual gifts and stuff in that class and try and help you understand how God's wired you and then start to look at ways that you can intentionally start living out your purpose on mission uh, with Jesus where he has you. So that might be a great option for you. I'm going to invite our, our prayer teams uh, forward. And always, as always, if you'd like prayer for anything, uh, they would love to pray for you. You know, we, we did a commissioning for Anita this morning. Uh, and I think sometimes it's, you know, it's worthwhile for me just to commission all of you, uh, to pray for all of you, because God is calling all of us to partner with him wherever he has you. Not just to come and gather once a week, but to actually be his ecclesia, to be his citizens, and to represent him with intentionality. And so I, I'm going to commission you, uh, and then I'll invite you to come for prayer. I've got a couple of announcements as we, as we close. But. So Lord, I, I thank you for each person in this space. Lord, that you died on the cross for the forgiveness of their, your sins. Lord, that you were resurrected on the third day. And because of that, we have great hope. have great hope that the life you're calling us to live is not in vain. The mission you're calling us to is victorious. Lord, for, for each person here, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to your spirit. Lord, that they would be aware of the gifts and abilities that you've given them. Lord, I pray that for those that feel discouraged or wonder about what their place is, Lord, I pray that you would just affirm them that that they are a part of your body, that they are a part of your team, that you are calling them to participate in what you're doing in the world. 
So Lord, we send each person in Jesus' name to their families, to their homes, to their workplaces, to their communities, to the grocery stores, to each place they're going, that they may be your ecclesia, they may be your citizens, your representatives, walking in your authority and identity that you've given them as sons and daughters of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.